News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's a pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 28th, and show number 12 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davich, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. And, of course, we'll have our weekly talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing first-pitch forums, how he looks at spring training stats, and more. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about using laptops for your fantasy drafts. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The ball games have started. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, spring training baseball is underway in the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. And even though it's somewhat silly, it's also fun to look at the stats after the first couple of games. Look, there's Juan Francisco, a journeyman, leading the power parade with two homers in his first two games and 21 other guys with a dinger apiece. Your RBI leader? None other than Cleveland catcher Jake Lowry. Who? Jake Lowry. He had a grand slam in his only at-bat this spring, and the four RBIs lead all of baseball. There's a bunch of guys batting a 1,000, but only Chris McGinnis, a first baseman for Pittsburgh, is 4-for-4 four four through his first two outings. Now your early stolen base leader is a familiar name among speed burners. It's Rajai Davis, who swiped a couple in his one game with the Tigers. There are 20 other players who have a steal apiece, including the Reds' Billy Hamilton, of course, but also such unlikely thieves as Ryan Domit and Victor Martinez. And speaking of unlikely characters, we open our show with our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's uh, talk about Lima, guys, this week. Uh, all over the BaseballHQ.com site, the analysts are looking at Lima targets across various categories, starting pitchers, relief pitchers, and hitters. And let's start with the starting pitcher, Steve Nickrand, excellent columnist at BaseballHQ.com, looked at some guys who have the good skills but might be a little underappreciated, and a name from the past, Dan Heron. A few years ago, he was a pretty elite fantasy starter, but for the last few years, he hasn't been nearly as successful. Why does Steve Nickrand like Dan Heron so much? Well, you know, last if you look at what Dan Heron did last year, I mean, Dan Heron has, a, has an injury history, and, uh, and those kind of put him uh, out off the radar a little bit. And last year, his first half was absolutely awful in terms of the surface stats. I mean, we're looking at a... 6.15 ERA, and you kind of go, oh, my goodness, what? why are they even running this guy out there? But you look, at, underlying that 6.15 ERA was a, uh, a high dom rate, uh, excellent command, um, just a, a, bit of, a bit of bad luck. Uh, Heron had a, a low strand rate, a, a, a few too many balls leaving the park in terms of a 16% home run per fly rate, uh, a high hit rate, uh, and in the second half, things really turned around. He began pitching to his skills, and Second half, 3.29 ERA, 121 BPV, uh, 8.6 strikeouts per nine innings, 1.8 control. I mean, really looked to have vintage skills in the second half. So what's going to happen is a lot of guys are going to look at his overall stats from last year, and I think really undervalued Dan Heron. And here's a guy that's, uh, that's an experienced pitcher. He's only 33 years old. Uh, he's got a lot of experience behind him. He, he knows how to pitch. Uh, I think Dan Heron's a really good bet for the uh, for this coming season. Yeah, I do too, and I agree that it could be very likely that people are, are going to look at that six point whatever ERA in the first half and an overall pretty poor year last year, finished around four and a half, four point six, something like that. 
but his his dominance rate has actually stayed really steady over the last five or six years, and his command has been outstanding. 4.9 strikeouts for every walk is something that we look for with great interest. And then if you look at that home run per nine rate for the whole year, it was around one and a half. But if you discount it based on the first half, second half, bad luck, I think Dan Heron could be a real steal. Yeah, I think he could too. I mean, here's a guy, he's not going to get you 200 innings like he used to do a few years ago, but but he could throw 175 innings easily. And so, yeah, I think very definitely a, a steal at this point. Baseball HQ right now is projecting Dan Heron for 10 wins, 131 strikeouts, a 379 ERA, 117 whip, not so bad, and maybe seven or eight bucks. And like you said, it's the innings pitch that's going to be the the problem here, probably only around 145, 150 innings projected based on age and track record and so forth. So keep Dan Heron in mind, at least for the later part of your draft, uh, the 4 to $5 picks or the you know, 18th, 19th rounds. Uh, bullpens columnist Doug Dennis also has his Lima targets for relief pitchers. A lot of interesting names here, a lot of familiar names, I have to say. Uh, Lima guys tend to be Lima guys year in and year out. But one name that jumped out at me was Mark Melanson of the Pirates. Yeah, Mark Melanson had a really great year last year. A 1.39 ERA. I mean, come on, how do you how do you do that? And and slipped into the closer role at the end of the year and got 16 saves. But is not going to be there to start the year. It's going to be the second guy, and that's going to mean he's not he's going to get overlooked in a lot of places, and may get overlooked too with guys thinking he was just kind of lucky because in 2012 he had a 6.20 ERA. So Mark Melanson has got absolutely strong strong skills. Again, a guy like. Uh, uh, a guy like Heron. Look at the skills from last year: eight point nine strikeouts per nine innings, one walk per nine innings. Amazing skills. Eight point eight command. I mean, this guy is a very elite relief pitcher, and he's going to drop a lot because folks are going to look at the fact that he's not going to be the closer uh, and and go some other direction. Uh, but but Melanson sure looks like a good pickup and is likely to wind up in the closer role. I think before the year's over, uh, Jason Grilly could easily be traded. And so uh, I, I think he's someone as a, as a, a definite, definite Lima target with safe potential. I agree. I don't think so much that Grilly will be traded. I guess that's a possibility. The Pirates figure to be fairly competitive, and they probably wouldn't trade away their closer if they were in the race. But I, I saw Jason Grilly get hurt last year. He's no spring chicken. He's had an injury history in the past. That's where I think Melanson's path to saves is, is via the injury route for Jason Grilly rather than, and, and perhaps under performance more than trade. But I think you make a good point. And we, we're projecting him as a $9 pitcher, even with only five saves. What's he going to be worth if he gets 25? That's a $30 pitcher. Yeah, very definitely. So, you know, definitely a guy, a guy to tuck away, uh, and you'll, you should be able to get him fairly inexpensively in drafts. Staying with those Lima articles, Batting Buyer's Guide columnist Dan Becker also looked at Lima targets among hitters, and one of the names he mentioned as a grade A candidate is already getting some buzz among the touts. Nolan Arenado, the young third baseman in Colorado, not exactly a, a household name, but nor a complete secret either. No, very, you know, not a complete secret. I think, you know, the thing with Nolan Arenado, he came up last year, and, and some people would say maybe a little disappointing in that first outing in Colorado. Um, 267 batting average, 10 home runs. Uh, you kind of go, eh, you know, that's okay. But, uh, you know, uh, that, remember this guy, that was the first time around the league for this guy. And there's some real skills here that could translate into production. We're talking about a 23-year-old, so, you know, what do, what do you want? Um, if, you, if you look at our projection for Nolan Arenado this year, we're projecting 14 home runs, 62 RBIs, 279 batting average. But here's a guy who takes some walks. He's got a 87% contact rate. Um, all of that, that really, what we really could be looking at at that projection is sort of a floor. It would be, I, I don't see Arnado falling much below that. And certainly at age 23, there's a lot of upside above that. So some folks are beginning to look at him and to note those skills. So he may go a little bit higher in drafts than, uh, than some of the other kind of Lima guys we talk about. But at the same time, here's a guy that could easily exceed his projection, I think. Yeah, I think a couple of things are going to have to happen for him to exceed the projection. And the first thing is he's going to have to stop hitting so many ground balls and start getting a few of them in the air. He's only around 33 34% last year. Our projection is for pretty much more of the same. So that means there's a kind of natural limit on his home run potential unless he starts lofting a few more of them up into that thin air in uh, Colorado, which would be a real big help. And And... One other comment I'd like to make about Arenado is 
if he struggles at the plate a little bit on and off, you know, slumping here and there, he's not the kind of guy who's going to get pulled right away because he's such an excellent defender. His glove will keep him in the lineup where a lot of other guys might get pulled because they're just not offering anything if they're not hitting. But Nolan Arenado's a plus-plus defender, and I think that might buy him a little extra time uh, should he struggle with the stick. Yeah, absolutely right. If he, if he struggles a little bit early or, or at any time during the year and has a short, a short slump, He's, he's going to stay in the lineup because of that defense. And finally, Nick, another Lima hitter in Dan Becker's column, again, is not exactly a household name. Again, not exactly a big secret. The Mets second baseman Daniel Murphy gets a B-plus for Lima, and this, this guy is quietly really quite a good fantasy player. He really is. I mean, he had an excellent, an excellent year last year. I mean, if you look at what, at what Murphy did last year, we're looking at 13 home runs, 23 stolen bases, 286 batting average, a $29 value. I mean, that's that's a lot of value for a guy who's certainly not a household name. The other thing, though, that, that the point that Becker makes to be careful about is there aren't any really remarkable skills here. Uh, I mean, he makes a lot of contact. He, he, he does make good hard contact, but uh, just an average uh, average uh, power uh, speed is, uh, is not really remarkable. His stolen brace breakout, Becker points out, was largely a result of, of a surge in, in opportunity rather than uh, his speed. I mean, we're looking at speed that's kind of average, too. So I think, I think yes, Dan, Dan Murphy uh, has some skills and could do very, very well and did well last year, but not a guy you want to pay a lot for because he's sort of a, as Becker says, a second or third tier option uh, at second base. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. But if you try to pay for last year's numbers again, say, yeah, this guy's, uh, this guy's uh only 29. He's got another peak year coming. I'm going to pay $32 for him. I wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't either. The two years before his $29 breakout last year, he was in the 15 to $17 range with very consistent results, six home runs, which he doubled. Mind you, he had a few more at-bats uh, in each of those years. So he had six home runs, around 50 RBIs, and, and quite a few uh, bags, but not nearly as many as he had in 2013. I think what we saw last year is the ceiling at $29. We talked about ceilings and floors with uh, Nolan Arenado, and if you're going to buy a, a player for big money what you really want to do is try to get the floor and not the ceiling yeah very definitely you want to get a, and you want to get a guy that's shown some consistent performance and so you're right it was the ceiling was a career year he's going to come down off of that this year so you don't want to pay again for last year production because i doubt that it'll happen the projection at baseballhq.com if you're keeping score at home is 11 homers uh, 70 rbis a 291 average 17 stolen bases a good solid year valued at about 24 25 bucks uh certainly don't pay more than that and try to get it for less uh nick thanks very much for talking with us and we'll catch up with you again next week thanks a lot patrick good luck in all your drafts coming up yeah gonna need it uh, harold nichols is our man on the national league beat here at baseball hq radio now let's turn it over to the american league and baseballhq.com director of news and analysis and regular writer jock thompson jock welcome to the show hi pd let's start off our tour through the american league this week in the american league east in baltimore where though an announcement has yet to be made it looks like tommy hunter is the odds-on favorite to win the closer job there Dave Adler wrote about this in Facts and Flukes. How does it look to you? Well, I think the main reasons that Hunter has been tabbed as the Baltimore closer favorite is just that there's there's not an obvious closer profile choice in that pen. And Hunter put up a pretty good ERA, a, a 2.81 ERA last season. Uh, as Dave points out in the column, Hunter's velocity soared into the mid-90s after he was put in the pen, and his, and his dominance rose from just over five to just over seven strikeouts a game. But even though his control has always been exquisite, um, he's still not the, the prototypical closer profile, especially with the ground ball rate hovering in the low 40s. As Dave points out, also, Hunter has extreme left-handed splits. Lefties slugged about 535 against him. So I actually see a closer role that could be volatile or even a committee by design at times in Baltimore. I was going to ask you about uh, what kind of options Buck Showalter might have besides Tommy Hunter, who... I agree with you. It doesn't look uh, really like a, the typical closer profile. Well, you got Darren O'Day, whose BPIs are at least equal to Hunter's, even though he may not throw as hard. And, and the same with lefty Brian Mattis, who actually made some pretty big strides in getting right, right-handed hitters out in 2013, and, and who's very tough on lefties, by the way, which could complement Hunter's work. Um, you've got newly acquired Brad Brock, who's a big strikeout guy. He's, he's probably the biggest strikeout guy in the Baltimore pen. But he's not going to close until he can get his walks under control. But like I said, the point here, again, is that while, 
While Showalter may not have the perfect guy, he has other options he can use in place of Hunter. Which should depress uh, Tommy Hunter's value at the draft table, you'd think, although you like to get the guy who has the role coming out of spring training, even if he only gets you 10 saves, if it only costs you 5 bucks, not a bad deal. Yeah, you got to wonder what, what Showalter's going to do if uh, if Hunter's in a situation where he has runners on base and he's got a lefty up. That, uh, that uh, 535 slugging percentage against lefty hitters doesn't look too promising. Yeah, and you have to believe that the first three-run homer off a left-handed hitter is going to be the end of Tommy Hunter. Staying with Dave Adler's facts and flukes, also staying in the American League East, Kelly Johnson looks like a slight favorite to replace Alex Rodriguez at the Yankees' third base spot. How is the Yankees' third base situation shaking out overall? Well, right now in the early spring, it's shaping up as a potential platoon with Scott Sizemore, who's missed the past two seasons with knee injuries and who also has significant split issues versus right-handed pitching, even when he was healthy. Now, Johnson has really struggled against left-handed pitchers for the past three seasons, but at least as a left-handed batter, he can still hold his own power-wise, despite that mediocre batting average. And like Dave points out, his power will at least be stabilized in Yankee Stadium with that short right-field porch. And he qualifies at second base and outfield already, so the three positions are a bonus for uh, Kelly Johnson as well. Yeah, there's definitely batting average downside here, Jock, I think, but this could be one of those plays where should they end up in a platoon situation, it might actually make Kelly Johnson a little more valuable because he's only going to be hitting against guys that he can hit. Uh, Doug Dennis put up his Lima Skills column over in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide. I've already talked about one of those recommendations by Doug Dennis with Nick in the National League News. One interesting name that Doug touched on in the American League was Bruce Rondon from the Detroit Tigers, and you also wrote about him in your Keeper League Reload series on young, undervalued relievers. How does Rondon look in Detroit this year, particularly now that they've acquired Joe Nathan? Well, I really liked what I saw from Rondon at the end of last season, as well as his current situation behind Nathan. Uh, as we all know, he struggled early on. He got demoted, but he really pounded down the stretch. He had a 2.55 ERA. He struck out 10 per nine inning and a 53% ground ball rate over his final 25 innings. And he regularly was touching 100 miles an hour. Doug points out that Nathan is getting older. In fact, I've been one of those who's been amazed that Nathan has lasted as long as he have. I, I, I thought he would have faded a little bit by now at age 39. But he's not going to last forever. The the one big red flag I see with Rondon is that elbow strain that shelved him last September and through the, the Tiger postseason. That's a big caveat that needs to be monitored in March. And having said that, though, Joe Nathan himself has had elbow issues in the past. Maybe another reason to keep Bruce Rondona under your uh, hat as a possible guy to get near the end of the draft. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and, and like we've, we've noted already, uh, uh, Joe Nathan is 39 years old, so he won't last forever especially valuable in keeper leagues, and especially since they went into spring training last year having anointed Rondon as the closer until he proved he couldn't handle the job, and then uh, Joaquin Benoit ended up with it and really ran with it. Uh, Over in Houston, the American League Central, another player you wrote about recently in your American League playing time tomorrow space was Jesus Guzman, whom they picked up from San Diego, and you like him. Yeah, um, at least until the arrival of John Singleton, who obviously is still Houston's uh, first baseman of the future. Guzman looks like the Astros' best bet at first base right now for, for maybe a couple, maybe 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 more than a couple months. Uh, for three straight seasons, he's had a 120-ish PX playing half his game at San Diego and Petco, and we all know Petco is death on right-handed hitters. But Guzman hit 18 home runs and less than 600 at-bats over the past two seasons with San Diego, and I think he can do better in Minute Maid uh, with Minute Maid's short left-field porch. And keep in mind, this was a guy who made better contact before 2013, too, so a small rebound could kick his batting average up from the 240-250 range up to 260-270. And again, this is another player who qualifies at both first base and outfield, so he could be valuable in deep leagues. He could, even if Singleton comes up as expected sometime this year, it's not like uh, Guzman is now out of a job because there's a good possibility that he could transition to the outfield in Houston and maintain at least some of his at-bats. Uh, who else is in that first-base mix? Well, you've got Mark Krause, who um, has has a, a pretty decent history in uh, power and patience-wise in the minors. Um, scouts say he has a slow bat, that he's not going to catch up to major league fastballs, and he didn't do real well in a, in a, uh, a short major league debut last year. We've also got a, uh, a mystery man, Yafet Amador, who's a, a refugee from the Mexican League. He is a big 6'1", 300-pound first baseman, but who put up some amazing offensive numbers um, that we really can't translate to Major League play yet. 
He is about to report to camp, I think, this week after after his wife had some pregnancy issues. Um, we'll have to watch him closely. And you've still got Brett Wallace hanging around, although given his DFA and the fact that there were no takers, I, I, I think he has a pretty short shelf life in Houston. Did you say Amador 6'1", 300 pounds? Yes. He is a big, big man. <laughs> he certainly is. I'm going to put him down for zero steals if that's all right. <laughs> I think I think that's a good call, PD. Although I had Mo Vaughn one year, and I don't think he was much smaller than 6'1", 300, and he stole me 10 bases, which was maybe the biggest shock I've ever had in fantasy baseball, that 10 stolen base year from Ovan. I won my league that year as well, partly because of that. And finally, Jock, both Ray Murphy in his speculator column and just the other day Bob Berger in his uh, American League Central Playing Time Tomorrow column wrote about Carlos Carrasco and whether he has a chance to make the rotation in Cleveland. Jock, I have to tell you, I've been a big Carlos Carrasco fan for a long time and he's pretty much been a disappointment any time I've had him. So how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I think you and I and a lot of other uh, of the analysts over at Baseball HQ have liked Carrasco for a long time. Um, his ERA was interrupted in mid-2011 with Tommy John surgery. I think just, just as you and I thought, he might be breaking out. He, he missed all of 2012. He, he, he wasn't particularly sharp in 2013, and he had some maturity issues. Um, his velocity's back. I saw him throw yesterday. Uh, he, he looked actually pretty good. He, he throws in the mid-90s. When he's on, he gets lots of ground balls. He gets just enough strikeouts, around 6-7 per game. And he's filthy when he has his command. The, the problem is his command has not returned since Tommy John surgery. Um, he is out of options now, which, which makes uh, it, it imperative on Cleveland to find a spot for him, um, either in the rotation of the bullpen. So he looks like the favorite right now. When you say maturity issues, what does that mean? Well, he wound up last year in a couple of games when things weren't going well for him, throwing at hitters. He actually got suspended, I think, in a game against the Yankees in which he couldn't get out of the first or second inning. Um, he wound up giving up a lot of hits and a lot of runs, and then he hit two batters in a row. Um, and shortly after that, Cleveland demoted him, so they weren't happy with him. I guess it must be frustrating for a guy like that, especially if you have talent to have it derailed and side sidetracked by various kinds of injury issues and, and performance issues. Uh, sometimes he's a younger guy, maybe just uh, a little too much to handle. Jock, thanks very much for helping us out this week. We'll talk to you again next Friday. Okay, PD. We'll see you next week. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. And he's a guy who writes an awful lot at the site as well. Check out Jock at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up next, our weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription to BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, our Friday news and notes edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's weekly Fanalytics column analyzes the average draft position first round. Patrick DiCaprio looks at out-of-the-box auction strategies in the rotisserie column. And Doug Dennis has 2014 Lima Skills Relievers, as you've heard us talking about already here on the show. Plus, we have all our regular features, performance validation and facts and flukes, our buyer's guides, and much more. It's all on the site right now or coming up soon at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's our pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, a contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and Points West and South. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Uh, before we get started talking about spring training and down there in uh, Phoenix where you're having the opportunity to participate in labor as an administrator, and I think you're going to be taking in a lot of games while you're there. How did things go at the first pitch forums in uh, L.A. and San Francisco? Uh, it was uh, really good to be back to the, to the West Coast. I haven't been back for a few years, and uh, forgot how much I enjoyed the crowds out in L.A. and San Francisco. They went real well. Uh, a lot of interactive activities. Um, we missed the boss. We missed Ron being there, but we, uh, we managed to get through without it. 
and uh, you know, it was a lot of questions at the end, which the, the, these groups seem to, you know, they keep us busy to the very, you know, to the very end, ask, answering questions. That's one of our favorite parts. It went really well. Any particular themes coming up in the questions from your audiences? Yeah, I, a lot of some some injury stuff, and actually this year. There were, you know, we talked about a little about last week about Larry Schechter's book. There's been some questions on Larry's book, which is kind of interesting. Good for Larry that it's getting out there and getting some publicity. So, yeah, and, and of course, when the questions were asked, everybody in the panel, the uh, the speakers, because, you know, it's kind of a free-for-all, they all kind of turned to me and looked, you know, you handle this one, Todd. So uh, that was kind of funny. And uh, as I mentioned, you're in Phoenix for labor, but you've been out to the ballpark. Who have you seen play in the Cactus League? A uh, minute to one game so far, just one. Went out to Goodyear, gorgeous new ballpark, to see the Indians and the Reds. And the uh, the leadoff hitter, uh, Billy Hamilton, was who we really wanted to see. Uh, actually, I wanted to see Carlos Santana playing a little third base as well. Um, he started the game at third for the Indians. Hamilton led off with a nice solid single, and they tried to pick him off, and he ended up on third base. That was kind of silly. Uh, Santana didn't have any chances at third, but he looked, you know, solid hit at the plate. Um, then, kind of, I don't want to say surprise, but Francisco Lindor came in, and one of the wonderful shortstops uh, in the minor leagues now. He, you know, he, he looked a little young. He long swing to me, uh, you know, second game of the, you know, who, who's to say? But, uh, you know, see three, saw three at-bats, and he um, looked, you know, he looked young to me. We'll, we'll leave it at that, I guess. And uh, pitching-wise, saw uh, Johnny Cueto, and just the fact he was thro- flo- throwing, excuse me, throwing freely was good to see. Uh, Justin Masterson pitched an inning and looked, you know, looked Justin Masterson keeping the ball down. And uh, then, then on Corey Kluber came up, and you know, this many in the industry have a little bit of a bromance going on with Corey Kluber, and I hate to say that he just got lit up. But on the good note is if. If a couple of those line drives were about 12 feet uh, less, you know, 12 feet high, less high, it may have been a different story. So uh, we'll just leave it. That, you know, if you can, if you get those line drives to be lower, we could be in business. <laughs> All he has to do is get them to hit the line drives right at guys. Nah, I'm not worried about. It's one one start. I'm not worried about it. But it was just, you know, I they started Masterson. And I didn't realize that Kluber would be coming in. So when they announced his name. You know, I'm probably the only one in the park who like perked up and actually started cheering. It was weird, kind of weird. Yeah, those kind of situations often are weird. Uh, Todd, before we go on to talk about uh, spring training in general, I'm curious when you mentioned Carlos Santana playing third. He's one big catcher from last year who's going to be making a transition out of the role. He's going to be eligible at catcher for 2014 drafts, but he's not going to be catching. Uh, either nearly as much or at all. And the same thing is true of Joe Maurer in Minnesota. And I'm wondering, how do you think we need to adjust our expectations of these two catcher-eligible players who won't be catching anymore? Um, it seems like it should be a bump, but how much? You know, Maurer, I'm not so sure, because he, he, uh, he did a lot of DHing and a lot of catching anyway. And, and same with Santana. Um, so it's not as if they're completely from catching into the position. If anything, uh, it's just they, they can get a few more games in there. They should be playing regularly. And, again, they both played a whole lot anyway. Uh, so, I mean, maybe an extra 20 or 30 plate appearances. I don't really know if we can can say that their skill level is going to get that much better. I think you, maybe you can, on the edges, think, I mean, in your head, think it might get a little bit better. I don't know if I'm going to factor it into my actual numbers so to speak, because it's, it's such a small amount that I don't know if it'll matter that much. But to, with Santana, to me, it's just more... I'm actually, if he plays third, I don't want to say less less high on him, because first and DH might be a little bit easier positions. For me, it was more of, what am I going to do with Lonnie Chisenhall and some of the other Indians uh, it, more than, than you know Santana himself. Uh, but, um, you know, he, he they're, they're trying him there, and it, it's serious. It's not just one of those things that he that he says in you know second game of the year and there he was all right i'll bite then what what do we do with lonnie chisenhall especially if santana is relatively successful at making this transition as far as the leather is concerned just i don't uh i'm not in a mixed league i'm not all that concerned because he's a a waiver wire fodder anyway but in a only you know it it matters and you know is he uh is he if he starts he's a 15 dollar player if he doesn't 
he's a one dollar end gamer. So you know, it, you know, Labor's got an interesting question this weekend with the AL draft, AL Labor this weekend. You know, do you, do you take a flyer, a two dollar flyer, and if Santana wins the job, you could have yourself a nice little, uh, a nice little guy there. But if you pay twelve or fifteen dollars for him, and Santana, uh, you know, still wins the job, you've got a, a twelve to fifteen dollar reserve. That only plays one position and you know doesn't steal, <laughs> so it's 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 kind of a tough little dis- decision one makes you know tomorrow or uh, whenever the ALA I'm not sure if it's Saturday or Sunday for the AL uh, labor draft, but they've got a tough decision on their hands. My you know I'm just I you know I produce numbers so I need to how many how many plate appearances do I give Chisenhall going forward? It's not again it's not so much for Santana he's getting his six fifty no matter what. In general, Todd, when you're looking at spring training, not so much eyeballs on the players, but when you're looking at the stats and all of us are, are pouring over the stats and seeing, oh, look at him, he hit three home runs already, stuff like that. How do you treat players' spring training performance when you're assessing them for auction or draft purposes? When is a spring training overperformance or underperformance real for you when it comes time to make some decisions about how you want to project them? There's, a, there's two. I think there's, it's, it's like not. It's, there's two ways to approach the question. With you know established players, uh, I don't worry about it a whole lot at all. Even you know whether they hit home runs or whether they don't hit home runs or, or whatever it is their their production usually is. So sta- established players, I don't I don't worry about it one bit. Uh, I'm not going to change their baseline at all. Um, where I, where it matters most to me is the position battles. And, you know, someone like Matt Davidson and, and the White Sox trying to win the third base job or Owings and Gregorius in Arizona with the shortstop position or LeMahieu and Rutledge in Colorado. So those numbers I'm keeping an eye on because if they're, if they're actually a competition, the, you know, the guy with the better numbers is the guy that's going to win the job. So to me, you know, it, it matters. I'm not necessarily going to change my projection for them. But it matters as far as playing time goes, and at least at least initially. And you know, Philadelphia with with, with Ash and and uh, see how Ryan Howard's hitting, and then and Mikel Franco as well, and the whole Seattle, how that's all going to flesh out with uh, Morrison and Hart and Smoke and Ackley. You know, where the bats are going to go. So I might not change my opinion on the how they're going to play if they were to play. It's just how much time. You know, how much am I going to bid on them? When I when I when I turn from being information disseminator to actual player, how much I'll bid or how high I'll draft these players myself. Now the drafts are coming up pretty soon. And what about watching how guys are recovering from injuries? Well, that's big as well. Uh, Bobby Parnell on on the Mets and and you know Cole Hamels and Iwakuma. Some of these guys that uh, in, we even had a couple of injuries this week with. Um, with with Trevor Rosenthal was was one and 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 I'm not I haven't heard the news yet about Zach Granke how serious his uh, leaving after four pitches might be so sure and then hitters you know, I mentioned Ryan Howard so we're going to keep an eye on Howard and Mark Teixeira uh, players like again if they don't if they're not hitting homers all not all that concerned um, someone like someone like Joey Batista if he does hit home if he doesn't it's not a bad thing. But if he does, I think it's pretty good, a good thing. Uh, it's kind of a weird way to put it. It should be, should have both ends of the uh, equation. But for someone like that, I, uh, if he is hitting him, because that's our concern coming coming off the injury there. Um, off the top of my head, there's not a whole lot of other, well, there are. I just, uh, the, the sort of the injury, Matt Kemp, but I think he's, you know, he, does, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't take a step without it being tweeted or on the pages. So we're pretty sure we'll find out how Matt Kemp's doing. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, boy, they're having some injury issues already in the Dodgers camp. That's going to be interesting to see going uh, through the uh, entirety of spring training, especially with this Australia trip looming as well. Uh, Carl Crawford's hurt. Uh, Zach Grinke pulled himself out of a game after four pitches. So some alarm there. And, and again, does that kind of news affect how you look at a player when you're going into draft? And can it present a buying opportunity? Well, I think what, what it definitely does is it, it – bumps up someone like Andre Ethier up the uh, up the ladder a little bit not you know it also uh, the the interesting one that, that that sort of came out as well is if they if they keep everybody in their five game schedule you know Clayton Kershaw would pitch three straight games but they're not so sure they want to do that maybe because they Felix Hernandez did that a few years ago 
and it didn't work. You know, he had that slow start, and everybody's worried about his his velocity dropping, and it turned out to be just nothing. But uh, some people I've actually heard, you know, Kershaw's the number one pick, but he's even better because he's going to have you know 36 starts this year because of the whole schedule. But they, ha- I think they've announced that that they may not be playing him. You know, he may not get all three of those starts, even though in theory, based upon workload, that he could, or not workload, but just the timing of it, that he could. But, um, you know, like I said, Granky right now, a little concerned about Hamels. Hamels, I'm knocking down. Uh, I actually took a little bit of skill level away, just along with a couple of starts. That, that has me a little bit worried there, more because I think when he does come back, he might start out a little bit slower before he gets back to being the same old, same old again. Uh, so Hamels, I'm uh, you know watching a little bit, concerned about. He was going under value as far as I could see too, based upon last year's numbers. So it's kind of a kind of a bummer to me that he got hurt because I was getting him, uh, or you know, on, on a lot of the mocks and felt I could get him going forward too. And finally, Todd, uh, one particular player that a lot of people are curious about is going to be Ryan Braun. He home- homered in his first at bat, I believe, in spring training this year. But there's a lot of questions about Ryan Braun as far as trying to make an accurate valuation because of we don't know ex- exactly what his history is with these PEDs. He's coming out of the suspension, and we don't know really. How do you put a value on Ryan Braun, and what kind of expectation do you have for him? One of the reasons I love going to these first-pitch forums as much as I do is I'm not only a speaker, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an, a, an attendee as well, and i uh, like to find out how people think about certain players and and that sort of thing and, and we have a, a little section where we uh build a projection and uh those folks in washington and new york and boston are going to get a little taste of this in a couple of weeks we still have the east coast swing and also cincinnati as well where we uh we, we take six players that have something quirky about them one way or another and that, that it's not a it's not an easy projection he was one and my numbers just raw come out to be about the 10th or 11th best hitter and I've had an opportunity to draft him in that area and I passed on him for players who I feel are more are, are, are more reliable although you know he obviously has the upside of one of the top five hitters is, is sort of the other side of the coin and that's actually where the where the group group source sort of put him uh, as far as as far we, we, we present different alternative you know best case worst case scenario sort of thing and come up with a weighted average and it turns out that the you know the rooms both put him at the end of the first round as far as you know raw numbers go uh i just you know i i do my numbers put him as well i just couldn't pull the trigger there's to me there there are just other players i you know prefer to rely upon at that point and the the difference between those numbers and if he were the old Ryan Braun, although you know in first round they're pretty significant, the the delta between players is pretty high, but there's just to me there's still just enough uncertainty, especially with the running game, because that you know that's really what put him over the top was those 15 to 20 steals, and I'm just not sure if he'll be running. Uh, so myself, I'm being a little conservative, and if I if I lose to someone who who had the um, who had the the nerve to draft Ryan Braun at the end of the year. You know, I'll pat him on the back and say, "Good call." I just, at this point, anyway, even after the home run yesterday, and there was a buzz in the ballpark. Uh, word got around pretty quick with all the, you know, everybody's got their little phone and and that sort of stuff. So, word even in the seats of the the, the, the park yesterday, from Twitter, I knew that Braun hit a home run in his first at bat. Talking about this idea of where to draft a guy like Ryan Braun, I don't know if you've seen uh, Ron Chandler's analytics column at BaseballHQ.com this morning yet, but he talks about, as he does every year, the 15 guys that are ADP are going to be in the first round this year. And then he points out it's almost a dead certainty that about, what, half of them or a little more aren't going to be worthy of being picked in the first round. And that makes me think. Well, I know, and I know that's true. But then I'm, I want to ask you: if you're picking after the first four or five guys who are pretty good locks to at least maintain that first round value, what do you do if you're picking ninth? Do you just pick the ADP guy in the ninth spot or somebody like him, or do you just gamble? I, I, I don't know how to handle that information or manage it. Right. Uh, that's the, yeah. It's it's. I think the numbers are even worse than you said. It's 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 between thirty and thirty five percent. So in a, in a fifteen team draft. Five of the first-round players that 
are, are going to actually end up in the first round at the end of the year, you know, if you, if you compute values using the standard formulas. That's kind of insane when you think about it. Um, but, you know, the, as you suggest, the first, you know, the first four picks are probably, you know, you get Trout, Cabrera, uh, McCutcheon, and Goldschmidt in some, in some order there. Um, by reliability, by all rights, Clayton Kershaw should be the number five pick at this point. And whether I take him there or not, I just I just don't know. I don't think that I would. Um, it's kind of it's kind of contrary to what I was just saying about Braun and uncertainty. But you know, a guy that I look at that point in that next, and it could be anywhere from fifth to fifteenth, is Jacoby Ellsbury, which sounds really out there because of he's averaged only ninety two games the past four years. But if you parse the data a little differently. He's been a number one, he's been a first-round quality pick for three of the past five years. So on one hand, you know, 92 games over four years, that's not a first-rounder. On the other hand, you know, for 60% of the time, he's been a first-rounder. That's So it's, it's kind of a weird, uh, where do you want to go with it? There's a guy like Adam Jones who's just, you know, rock solid. And, you know, you're not going to get anything more, but he's got a pretty high floor. You can hope that Carlos Gonzalez stays healthy and use someone in his stead if he doesn't. Um, so, you know, the, but be, you know, maybe it's because I could get a chance at Ellsbury from fifth to you know, if Anywhere after fourth, no matter where I'm drafting, I'll probably be the one that will take Ellsbury. Maybe I've just settled or convinced myself that's the direction to go in. But you're right. It's, uh, it's I don't say what I'm saying. This is like a crapshoot, but it's... Uh, that's when the, the, the joke is, you know, the, the pick number five, this is where the draft begins. For me, it's not so much pick number five as it is pick number 12. The standard mantra is avoid the risk, take the best guy, you know, all of these kind of things. On one hand, that's what they tell us. And on the other hand, they say, but two-thirds of them are going to fail. And I, and I wonder, Todd, have you ever seen research that, that uh, gets more granular about the first round? Is it all 15 of the first round guys that two-thirds of them don't finish? Or is there a better record the higher up you go? So if, for instance, for example, everybody knows Mike Trout is going to be the first overall pick, or at worst, the second. Are first and second picks way more less likely to fail than three through 15? Is there a dividing line within the round about where the failure rate spikes? No, that's a good point. I've actually thought about looking at that. I haven't looked at it myself, and I haven't seen the data that actually broke it down. You know, I mean, off the you know, guys like Kemp and Pujols in recent years have been in the top three and have, you know, and even Carlos Gonzalez and have, have failed to live up to those and Braun for a couple of years, for two for two years, I believe. So I, I don't, they might skew the numbers a bit, but, you know, if you, this year especially, if you want to, if someone says pick five, um, you know, for me, you know, the top three you know, are the top three. Well, some people have Goldschmidt in the third. But, you know, so that leaves you, you know, two of the next 13 or two of the next 12. Uh, and that's, that, that's just kind of mind-boggling that, you know, and that's just, that's what history says is going to happen. Um, you know, people are putting Bryce Harper into that area as well, stuff like that. And, and, and again, that's just a pick that I'm, I'm not going to make, although I'm not going to, you know, scoff at those who do anymore anyway. <laughs> uh, sort of rethinking things how I... You know, go about. You know, I can see where he could make it, but I'm just not going to be the one that that does that. I know it's not common, Todd, but let me ask you a, a, a question about a a league in which you are allowed to trade your picks. So you could say, "I'll give you my first round and my last round." You give me two in the middle. If you were drafting in a, a league like that and you had, say, the twelfth pick, and you said to yourself, "My first round twelfth pick is a very likely guy to not pan out." And I'm therefore probably better off to have more picks in the middle and fewer picks way at the end, where where you're always kind of crap shooting. Would you take advantage of of a situation like that if you were eleven, twelve, thirteen? Maybe it depends upon. I mean, I would, well, it depends upon the you know. That's a cop out answer. I would definitely you know. Th- there's a way, and it's kind of you know the NFL does this where they have a little chart that says what you know, when they when they trade picks, what the picks are worth. Um, what I would you know I. I have that chart for for fantasy for for, and I would I would know what in theory on paper what picks would be would make up for it at least on paper. So if I could get a deal that on paper was better for me, I would probably do it. Uh, you know, regardless of what the pick was. Uh, 
but you know, at, at 12 and 13, 11 in that range, uh, you know, I would, you know, there's a, there's a couple guys that I could probably get a little bit later. So if I could swing a deal where that's the, well, that's what I did, I'd, I'd do it for sure. Although it, when you're back, when you're up to 11, 12, or 13, that's when you're in the Edwin Encarnacion and Adrian Belte range, and you're a little bit past the the Carlos Gonzalez's and Troy Tulowitzki's that are a few picks earlier. I almost would rather pick that a little bit later than be you know from the five to eleven or twelve range where the, you know the players would be really really good if they would just stay healthy, uh, as opposed to just you know they they're pretty good but their skills are just a little bit lower or a little bit less like in Encarnacion and and uh, Fielder and, and guys like that. Uh, Todd, I appreciate you taking the time from your busy schedule there in Phoenix. Now, you mentioned the First Pitch Forum's uh, East Coast Swing plus Cincinnati. Are you appearing at any or all of those? I will be appearing, weather permitting, <laughs> from what I understand, although we have a couple weeks for it to clear up. Uh, I'll be appearing in the, the Washington, Baltimore, and then making the, uh, the, the the drive up to New York City, and then back to my hometown and uh, in Boston. So I will... That, I, that I've managed to do every year since the beginning is the the, the, the East Coast uh, swing. So that's my uh, one of one of my favorite weekends of the year. Very much looking forward to it. And if you're listening and curious about maybe attending one of those first pitch forums, the Washington Baltimore area forum is Friday, March seventh. Then up to New York, New Jersey on Saturday the eighth. And in Todd Zola's hometown, Boston, Massachusetts, on Sunday the 9th. And then for those of you in the upper Midwest, if you're interested in going to the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati, I understand is the venue for the first pitch forums in Cincinnati, and that's on Saturday, March 15th. Todd, uh, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, The Mothership, and ESPN.com, and he appears every Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Master Notes is next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here is the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecaster for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for Master Notes. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about using laptops for fantasy drafts. Recent discussions on our Baseball HQ Radio podcast have sparked an interesting conversation at the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums about using laptops at draft. On Baseball HQ Radio, both Todd Zola and I had said that we don't use laptops. For Todd, he doesn't use them at any draft. And for me, I don't use it at Tout Wars, more on which in a moment. That announcement prompted a forums member to say he was frankly shocked at the news. Well, I'm frankly shocked that he's frankly shocked. We should keep that man away from loud noises. Just because I don't use a laptop at Tout Wars doesn't mean I think it's a bad idea in general. Actually, I think it's a good idea under some circumstances and a bad idea under others. So I think if the question is whether using a laptop at draft is a good idea, the only right answer is it depends. I've been using a laptop for years at Fantasy Baseball Drafts. I started way back in the early 1990s using Lotus 1-2-3 to build a worksheet, they didn't have workbooks back then, that calculated the projected standings and money situation for all 12 teams in my AL-only home league draft. The problem was that my computer at the time was a little laptop with 640 kilobytes of RAM, a floppy disk drive, no hard disk, and an 8086 processor. Using that underpowered computer for a draft was like driving a Toyota Tercel in the Indy 500. I entered the first player's name into his team, and then hit enter, and that little machine just couldn't keep up. It might still be trying to get Greg Gagne's stats onto Cal's clan. 
Later on, of course, computers got better, and the software got better too. I developed and slowly improved an elaborate Excel workbook that now lets me track league standings with empty roster slots temporarily filled by the average production of all remaining players. I can see the standings gain points and cost per SGP of all the remaining free agents as well, and I can monitor my opponent's money situations, how much each team has left to spend, how many roster slots each team has to fill, and all their maximum bids. It's a hell of a handy package, if I say so myself, and it has helped me be pretty successful in my home league. But, using my Excel book or any other software means I need time to input the data at the draft table to put the player's name and salary onto the correct team that drafted him. In my home league, it's not a problem. It's a 12-team keeper league where most teams come in with 10 or more of their roster slots already filled. As a result, we have to nominate and auction only about 140 players or so over the six hours of our draft, including our lunch break, and there's plenty of time between player nominations to enter the player's name and salary data into the master sheet. At Tout Wars, however, it's a different story. Tout is a non-keeper league, 15 teams with seven reserve rounds. We have to distribute 450 players, three times as many as my home league, and we have to auction 345 active roster players, all in roughly the same amount of time. As a result, the tout auction is maintained at the relaxed and courteous pace of Black Friday at Walmart, and the lightning pace just doesn't let me enter data quickly enough. I'm pretty sure I could do it, but I fear the cost of doing it would be too great. I wouldn't be able to watch the other guys at the table. I wouldn't be able to just think about what I want to do in response to what's been going on, and I wouldn't be able to kibitz with the guys. In short, other guys at Tout do use laptops, but I just find it impractical for me under those circumstances. By the way, I also had a laptop screen fail at Tout Wars one year. So, I don't use a laptop at Tout Wars. I think I might try it again this year just to track money and roster slots. All I need to do is enter a salary into a slot, and that shouldn't take me more than a second or two. But I'll stop doing even that if it means I'm being taken out of the moment at the draft table. So if I end up just using my grid and cheat sheets from the BaseballHQ.com custom draft guide, hey, don't be shocked. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternodes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternodes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for February 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 12 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our regular Friday correspondent was Todd Zola. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with BaseballHQ.com's Stratomatic expert Matt Beagle. That's our next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.